Hello, everybody. My name is Mike, and I'll be your sermonator for the evening. Thank you. Sermonator sounds so much more dangerous than preacher, doesn't it? Seriously? Sermonator. The sermonator. I'll be back. I'm here. Um, I really think, you know, worship should be more dangerous. I always have. I remember, I don't know if it was Flanagan or O'Connor or who it was, she said that when we come to worship, they should be passing out crash helmets and life vests and body armor at the door. Because you just might come in contact with the ultimate reality of the universe, the awesome God, the creator, the omnipotent, the omniscient. But, but normally at church, worship is kind of bland, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of dull. It's kind of boring, especially if you're a little 12-year-old ADD boy growing up in the Greek Orthodox Church and you have liturgy, you know, coming out your ears. I talked to my uh, parents on the way here tonight, and my, uh, after my mom died, my dad remarried, uh, and the Melika Nidhi, that's an American girl, in the Greek circles, that's considered a mixed marriage. And uh, I'm not kidding. My dad used that phrase just today as we were talking. Uh, and um, so he took her to the Greek church today. And they didn't know, but there was an extra hour of liturgy due to uh, the uh, celebration of Jesus' baptism. So he went through the normal hour and a half, two-hour liturgy, and then there was an extra hour. Imagine me as a young boy standing and sitting through hours of Greek Orthodox liturgy. I mean, it's a good thing that, like this church, that church had lots of things to look at, you know, stained glass and mosaics, and the priests had these robes, and there was censers, and there was all these things. So at least I wasn't, like, my imagination took over, and I wasn't totally bored out of my mind. I could ignore what was going on just fine and go to my own little world. And uh, I'm afraid it's like that for too many people, honestly. I, I think, you know, we come, what do we do? We, we come together, at least it's scum. We come together, we sit in chairs, we all face the same direction. We, 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 we sing to the wall, right? Then we sit down. And then we hear some guy give a lecture for a while. Then he stops. And then we stand up and sing to the wall some more. Say a prayer or two and then go home. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Like, what's the big deal? I remember back when I was at the Presbyterian Church with this interim pastor, Les Avery. A lot of you know him because he's spoken here. But we used to meet in this little room off to the side of the sanctuary before church. And he would very often pray this. Oh, God, please let something happen today that's not in the bulletin. Because it was all lined out. Sometimes, you know, you think, church is so, worship is so boring. I, you know, it's almost, I almost get more of a rush when I go to a concert. You go to the high dive, you go to... 
the Gothic theater like I did a couple weeks ago, and I got to see the reunion shows of uh, Nathan and Stephen, Born in the Flood. People are singing along with all the songs. They're swaying. They're dancing. You know, it was. I'm thinking like, geez, this church should be this communal. Right? Like, what is it about worship? Why? How come sometimes we get more excited about what happens in a totally secular setting where God really isn't being brought up than we do in church? Now, doesn't that seem wrong to you? See, I think most of us come to church hoping that God is going to somehow break through the doldrums and do something spectacular. You know, maybe not even spectacular. God, if you would just open the curtain just a little bit and let me see just a ray of your glory, something that would set my mind whirling, that would be awesome. So I want to talk about this tension with worship. What is real worship? And the reason I bring this up is because we're starting this worship and prayer ministry coming up. I mean, we're going to devote a whole evening, three hours, seven to ten, to nothing but worship. There will not be a sermon. It's just prayer and worship. And we've already begun. We've got a team that's going through stuff and trying to get it all ready and trying to figure out how we're going to accommodate uh, different styles of worship and prayer and things like that. So I do this with reason. Last week was about prayer. This week's about worship. Interesting, huh? Okay. We're going to go to the scriptures. And actually, um, I, I've kind of written this sermon twice, and this is the second one. It's actually... Uh, based on a passage that I spoke on about four years ago or so, four and a half years ago, when we were going through the book of Isaiah. So if you want a more complete exposition of Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, then I suggest you go to our website and look at the uh, archives, and, and you can go through. And I'll, I spent like 46 minutes going through that passage, really setting up Isaiah for the rest of the time we were going to be doing that series. I'll do a little bit of that here, but not as much. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 6. If not, it should be on the screen uh, to my right. And I'm going to stop along the way a little bit, but not much. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, this was a traumatic event in the life of Isaiah, because Isaiah was kind of brought up under the reign of Uzziah, who was Israel's greatest king since David and Solomon. And he had done a lot to bring the, the country back to the true worship of God and to secure its borders and to fight off enemies and to bring some economic prosperity and stability. So he was a very, very revered and well-known king. Not perfect, if you read uh, the story of his life, but definitely one of the good kings in the good column of the kings of Israel and Judah. So it's a dark time. I mean, think about it as, you know, kind of like when the, uh, the Twin Towers fell. That's the kind of impact his death would have had. Or when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Or when John F. Kennedy was shot. 
It's, it's that kind of a national trauma. And the reason I bring this up is because he's about to have an encounter with God, and I think that very often God reveals himself to us in our darkest moments. When things look the most bleak or the bleakest, whatever the word is, is when he reveals himself to us because he knows we need a fresh view of his glory, of his care, of his love, of his concern. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, who with two... With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now these were obviously angelic beings, seraphs. In the Hebrew, the plural would have been seraphim. Uh, they were, Moses is actually instructed to, to put a depiction of two seraphim on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. But this is like the only sighting that was recorded in the Bible of seraphim. This is it. Seraphim in Hebrew means bright one or fiery one. So these are beings of intense luminescence. And they are flying around the throne. And they are shielding their eyes with two of their wings from the glory that is the Lord because it is so great and terrible, and awesome, that even beings made of fire have to shield their eyes from the intensity of the Creator. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doors, posts, and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So they're crying out, worshiping. Isaiah, for some reason, only known to God, is being shown a worship service or part of a worship service or a moment of worship in the heavenlies with angelic beings, which he himself if given the opportunity, would fall down and try to worship. Instead, they are worshiping the Creator. And they are crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. In Hebrew, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Now, ancient Christian theologians for 2,000 years now have seen in that a depiction of the Trinity. But in Hebrew... It's a super superlative. They don't really have adverbs in Hebrew that, you know, very or really or muchly or things like that. Instead, what they do in Hebrew is, is they repeat the word very often to get the superlative. So when the scripture says that God will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is focused on you, in that particular verse, it's shalom for peace. Perfect peace is shalom, shalom. So it's kind of the most shalomi shalom. It's the, uh, 
super-duper peace, right? Here, the angels are not doing it twice, they're doing it three times. They're going kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Like, it's so holy week, we, we have no words. Now, what does holy mean? Holy means set apart, totally other than what you are. Something so uniquely different of substance, of form, of character, that it is not normal. It is not routine. It is not mundane. It is not earthly. It is holy. It is set apart. And they're saying, okay, God isn't just kadosh, kadosh. God is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. He is so other and different, we, we can't even look. We get hints of this other places in the Scripture. You know, when we go to worship, we're all about Jesus being our pal. What a friend we have in Jesus, right? Or, you know, in the uh, film industry, you've got the, the buddy Jesus, right? I think God does draw close to us. We know that the Apostle John at the Last Supper actually put his head on Jesus' chest while they were eating and just whispered in his ear, asked him a question. So John, the Apostle, who calls himself the one that Jesus loved, was extremely tight with Jesus. But when it comes to John's revelation on the island of Patmos, when the risen Christ appears to him to show him what is to come, John sees the risen Christ and falls on the ground as if he were a dead man because he cannot stand up. The glory of the Lord is so strong. The apostle Peter, to whom Jesus gave the leadership of the early church, one of his close close compadres. The first time that Jesus reveals a little bit about who he is, the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter falls down in the boat and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. There is this sense that when we actually worship God and he decides to reveal himself to us even a little bit, we are not just, oh, this is so great, this is so awesome, I love Jesus, it's butterflies and birdies and songs. And No, it's not like a Disney princess movie at all. <laughs> you know, it's like the great and terrible Oz, you know, times a million. And Isaiah's response is appropriate to that revelation. He says in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, now, I want you to notice a bit about what's going on here. The Lord has decided to use Isaiah's senses to reveal himself to Isaiah in a new way. Because the place is shaking, right? And there's smoke. So at least, you know, the, the sensation of touch 
like he can feel the earth rocking underneath him. That's disconcerting. His vision is now obscured by the smoke that's filling the temple. That makes you a little scared, right? Sometimes God uses our senses to break through so we can get another little peek about his glory. He doesn't always do this, but he does it sometimes. I mean, God is obviously knows what he's doing and is shaking Isaiah up for a reason. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm thinking, that's an odd response, isn't it? Really, seriously, I mean, if you saw God, I mean, I don't know that that would even come into my mind to say something like that. Maybe it didn't for Isaiah either. Here's my spin on it, and this is Mike Sayers, not exactly uh, the scriptures. Isaiah was a man who was really good with words. Sixty-six chapters of the whole Bible were written by Isaiah. Some of the most beautiful prophetic language that we have. As a matter of fact, he is so revered as a writer, he is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. Words were Isaiah's stock and trade, it would seem. And the scripture says, where words are many, sin is not absent. You ever see how some of your greatest strengths also become your greatest weaknesses? Do you ever see that? Like confidence can turn into arrogance quite simply. Do you ever see that? Or um, intelligence can turn into disdain for other people's lack thereof. Sometimes the uh, people who are the most merciful can, on a flip of the coin, be some of the most judgmental people. It's that way, back and forth. Our, our, our strengths have these shadow sides. And I'm wondering if maybe that was his strength and his shadow side was the way that he used his mouth. Which makes me wonder, what if God appeared to us here at Scum of the Earth tonight and shook things up? Where would the locus of our sin be? Where, what would we say? Because we have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's go on. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. <clears throat> A coal from the altar. Does anybody know what happened on ancient Israelite altars? What happened on top of the altar? Does anybody know? It was a sacrifice, right? At Yom Kippur, uh, the high and holy day, when the sins of the whole nation 
were, were, were atoned for by the one spotless lamb that was killed by the high priest on the altar, the blood from the sacrificial lamb would drain out of its body and fall on the coals under the altar as the smoke would go up. I don't know that we have a more metaphorical picture in all of the Old Testament about the atoning work of Jesus than, than right here. Because what can take away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this live coal that the angel, this being made of fire, has to go and grab some tongs. I'm going, that's hot. And go and touch it to Isaiah's lips. And I'm thinking, that's got to hurt. But it's for purification, right? To purify things. And I'm wondering, you know, if you've been thinking about where the locus of your sin is, where does it lie? You know? For some people, it's going to be their eyes. Because your eyes have gone places where they ought not to go. I know this too well from personal experience, having been addicted to porn in my younger days. I understand. That's the portal through which bad images were getting in my head that didn't help me, that wouldn't help me in my marriage, that wouldn't help me in my ministry, that wouldn't help me at my job. And so I'm wondering if it was me at 20-some years old having a vision like this would the coals come and touch my eyes? Here's the great thing, is that the blood of Jesus has done its work in my life. I'm not addicted to porn. Haven't been for a long time. As a matter of fact, and this is just an aside, I'm going to go through a book by a Denver counselor named Michael Cusick. We just came out with a book called Surfing for God. It's about men and pornography addiction. And we'll just do a book study on that for several weeks. So be listening for that uh, to come uh, to pass probably sometime in February. But see, this is what an encounter with God does. Not only does it give us a glimpse of who he is that we never saw before, but then it begins to work something in us. It, we see who we really are. And purification begins to happen. Maybe it's your feet that take you into places that you wish you never went when it was all over. Because some of us, you know, our, our, our sin is kind of based on where we are at the time. You do pretty well as long as you're not at that person's house or in that particular bar.
Maybe it's your hands that have done things that God hates and that you hate. The blood of Jesus sacrificed on the altar for eternity is there to take away your sin both now and forevermore. That's why he came. So that you would be free of the guilt in God's eyes. So that you would be able to have a new revelation of God and be with God. And there's a third movement here. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I, Isaiah, said, Here I am. Send me. Worship to me has three components, as described in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. The last of which is the sending out. There's, it's not just enough to, to have a glimpse of God and to have your, your view of God changed, even in the darkest moments of your life. That's good. But you can get that kind of revelation at a rock concert, Right? You can actually, I mean, I've heard people go to U2 concerts and they have spiritual experiences. They see God in a brand new way. And they understand their own depravity. You know, I haven't been giving any money to AIDS research and the eradication of the AIDS virus in Africa. Right? But the sending out is unique to the worship of the one true God. The sending out. God had a job for Isaiah to do, and that was to be his prophet for the next three kings who were going to be on the throne. And it wasn't going to be easy. As a matter of fact, Isaiah's life ended when the last king that he served under had him sawn in two, the legend goes. Obviously didn't like the kinds of things that God was saying through Isaiah. But worship is not just about having a new revelation of God. That's awesome. I think we should desire that. And it's not just about seeing our own sinfulness and that's good because we're all sinful. We all need purification. That's the Christian life. People who were once addicted who are no longer addicted to alcohol, to drugs, to violence, to anger. But it's also taking people who thought only about themselves and got them involved in the plan of God for others who were in need. And so you have all these ministries spring up in the Christian world. I mean, why do we have so many hospitals named St. Luke and St. Mary's and blah, blah, blah? Why? It's because Christians started them as ministries. They weren't making the megabucks. They were nuns making nothing or monks making next to nothing. 
and serving the people that they loved in Jesus' name. Here I am, they said. Lord, send us. Schools are the same way. Schools have been begun by Christians who wanted to teach illiterate people how to read the Word of God. There's organizations just in Denver, like Sox Place, which serve homeless street youth. Why? Because Doyle Robinson heard the voice of God. Doyle, who will go for us and love the homeless street youth of Denver, Colorado? Or the brothers and sisters who started Dry Bones Ministry? Or John and Raylene Swanger and Cross and Clef Ministries? And I can go on and on, and you could go on and on. Missionaries going to different parts of the world. The Parolos, for the next two years, trying to get stuff together so they can go to Uganda and to minister. This happens over and over again. Why? Because it's an expression of true Christian worship. It's not just about us here in this building singing songs of the wall. It's about us going out and doing the will of God. Romans 12.1 It's about being a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, day in, day out. As we begin this season of worship and prayer, I want it to be real. I want it to be deep. I want it to be rich. I want it to be biblical. It's not just two of the three. It's all three of the three. I know that a lot of you have labored for a long time, wishing, praying, hoping that God would break into your life and begin revealing himself anew, as he did to Isaiah here in this passage. Let me encourage you by saying that Isaiah could have been in ministry for as much as 18 years before this took place. But this was his launching pad for the greatest portion of his ministry. You might have been a Christian for 18 years, for five years, wondering, is God going to ever pull back the curtain just a bit and let me see his glory again? This is what I have to say to you, because I believe it's in the life of Isaiah. Seek him, and you will find him. Keep knocking on the door, and it will be open to you. Keep asking, God, please reveal yourself to me, and he will reveal himself to you, because for everyone who seeks, he makes sure that person finds for everyone who knocks, he makes sure to hit that person the door is opened. And everyone who asks and keeps on asking, keeps on asking, finally is given what is desired.
Stay in a worshiping posture. Open yourself up to God. Avail yourself to His Holy Spirit. Allow it to happen. Come into the sanctuary with your crash helmets and your life vests and your body armor ready for God to reveal Himself at the most unexpected moment. And when that happens, do not hold on to your sin, but let it go. Let Jesus do His purifying work in your heart. And finally, be open. And not just open, but be willing to get up off of your ass in the church and go outside to worship God in the world. Social justice. Acts of mercy and compassion. Feeding, clothing, encouraging. That's true worship. And as we enter into this next season, let's not forget it. Please pray with me. Lord God, let us be people who worship you in spirit and in truth. Don't let us be the same. Take us and move us to the next level of your worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today is the day that we celebrate communion, the sacrifice by which we are purified. Is Jesus Christ. When Jesus was with his friends on his last night, he took them to an upper room and he broke some bread and he said, Take this bread. And eat it. This is my body given for you. And then he took the cup of wine. And he says, I want you to drink this. Because this is the cup of the new covenant that I'm making with you. What is that? I believe that what Jesus was doing was preparing his followers the ability to worship Him in spirit and in truth through the sacrifice that He made. It is because of Jesus that we are able to see God. It is because of Jesus that we are cleansed from our sins. And it is because of Jesus that we are able to go out and do the will of God. Remember this as you take communion today.